crypto is for everyone, not just rocket scientists, venture capitalists, and high IQ developers. Welcome to The Agenda, a Cointelegraph podcast that explores the promises of crypto, blockchain, and Web3, and how regular-ass people level up with technology. Welcome, everybody, to The Agenda. Today, we're actually going to have a special episode for you. So we don't have a guest on this episode. Instead, the guests are going to be each other. So Ray and I are doing sort of a meet the host Q&A thing that we think will be pretty interesting. We've each written three questions for each other, and we're going to ask each other these three questions, and we're going to just get our reactions to it and get our responses. We hope that this might help you get to know us a little bit better, get a little sneak peek behind the, you know, normally we're just here kind of asking questions and responding to people's answers, but we kind of want to just give you a little bit of insight again into us, what we think about the crypto space, philosophies, our vision, etc. So we'll just kick things right off without further ado. I will ask Ray my first question. Is there anything new you have learned about crypto or any interesting lessons you have taken away from the space from co-hosting our podcast, The Agenda? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say that adjusting one's horizons and expectations is something that's been brought to mind by all the fabulous guests that we've had on The Agenda. So uh, generally, like when you're investing in crypto, I know a lot of people are looking for a quick turnaround profit or at least to get profit like before the year is up. But that's not always the case. And I think what a lot of these builders and founders and projects demonstrate to us on the podcast is that their primary concern is not the token price. And for people that support the project, perhaps they should look beyond the token price too and see what sort of progress is the project making in its mission statement. So one thing that I've learned is that a lot of these projects, even though token price might not be doing a lot, they have established really meaningful partnerships with companies in the space. They have clients in the like traditional finance space, so on and so forth. Like I think Energy Web is a good example. I was startled to hear that not only are they looking to go multi-chain and be on Polkadot and Ethereum, but that they also have like a partnership with Shell, or they have a partnership with a company in Dubai, or they're working with like supply chain operators to authenticate, like track products in the blockchain, but also authenticate whether a certain good is organic or fair trade, or they're working with Bitcoin miners that use renewable energy to uh, help them prove and certify that the Bitcoins that they create are green. So these are things that if you don't follow the project, their socials, listen to their AMAs, stay up to date with developments taking place in the project that investors might not be aware of. So like Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, none of these companies went from zero to 100 in one year. For some, it took many years, decades, sometimes a generation for them to become top 500 companies. People that are interested in investing in crypto and making money off of it should also remember that Rome wasn't built in a day, and it's going to take a lot of time for a lot of these projects to find this type of market fit that then generates value back to shareholders or token holders. 
I think that's the biggest takeaway. Yeah. What was that aha moment where you really clicked with blockchain or crypto and it triggered that paradigm shift in how you think about things? So I went over this a little bit in our trailer episode where we kind of outlined the idea for the show, where we wanted to go with it and our backgrounds, how we got into crypto. I'm assuming that most people have probably not listened to the trailer. So I'm going to repeat a little bit of the story and reword it a bit. So apologies to all the diehard fans that have listened to every single episode since the beginning. But I would say that, well, when I took this job, I didn't really know anything about crypto. It kind of just looked super interesting, kind of sexy in in a cool kind of way. And what I would say it was that sort of clicked in terms of me being interested in sort of the ethos of crypto or, or wanting to stay in here for so long is sort is relating the decentralization that is within crypto to the decentralization that I learned works very well in the world of community organizing and disaster resiliency, which is what I was doing before I got into the crypto space. So in the disaster world, it turns out that when you put gigantic organizations, corporations, governments, nonprofits in charge of deciding how disaster relief should be distributed and communities should be prepared for disasters. When you put them in charge, instead of letting individual communities have a say, it doesn't go that well. (laughs) It turns out that this may sound obvious, but it isn't for a lot of people at least, but that it turns out that when you give communities and you bring control to the community level and communities organize locally, people are more prepared for disasters, more resilient for disasters, and are able to respond and recover better from disasters. So when I started to think about that from the lens of decentralization, then it sort of started to click as to like the whole crypto ethos is a much broader way of looking at this specific issue of community resilience and applying it just on a much larger scale or applying it to different things instead. So that was sort of the first thing that clicked and made me connect with it. And then as I got further into the space, I sort of realized that there's just a lot of overlap with other things I'm interested in. The privacy element, the cybersecurity element, those are all things that I've been interested in. And those are all things that sort of align with the original cypherpunk ethos of sort of taking communications and our digital lives out of the hands of the state. And I am sort of a, not necessarily a huge fan of most states. And so that sort of element sort of aligns with me when I think about the crypto space and the crypto ethos, if such a thing exists as well. And then, you know, as you get further into it, you realize that cryptocurrency or or blockchain technology is really just a technology. It's a database. At the end of the day, it's kind of distributed, decentralized way of keeping track of information. So it can really be applied to a lot of different things. So lately, what's been interesting me in sort of uh, triggering that aha moment, so to speak, is in the music world, sort of the potential of NFTs to be the next evolution in the way that artists work toward decentralizing the music industry. That's where it's clicking. And for me, in sort of that and the digital collectible narrative, what sort of helped me understand that this idea of the Mona Lisa, where you can have one Mona Lisa that's original, and you can have multiple different 
copies of it, multiple different variations of it, but only one individual Mona Lisa. And that's sort of what the digital collectible, the NFT represents, uh, is that you could, anyone can download, copy the JPEG, but there's technically only one original and there's a value attached to that. Uh, sort of a rambly answer, but I hope that answers your question. My second question, what are some of the biggest changes in the crypto space you have seen since you first got into it in 2017? Oh man, I could spend like all day long answering that question. I'll just break it down to three things. One, I think investors are smarter. Two, I think that institutions have changed their tune on how they feel about crypto assets. And many of them are now into crypto, which proof of that comes from all the Bitcoin spot, Bitcoin ETF applications, the spot Ethereum ETF applications, all the derivatives based. ETFs that already exist. So Wall Street and big institutions are now interested in cryptocurrency, whereas before they thought it was a scam. And I think that that's a positive. Third thing I would say is that everyone, I think, got a little bit lost in the weeds and the last bull run and the main focus beyond mass adoption and mainstreaming was also profit. Bitcoin miners we're seeing money, right? They like both eyeballs had uh, dollar signs in them. And because of that, they made some poor decisions when it came to managing their risk, balancing their debt, so forth. Investors did the same thing. Centralized exchanges did the same thing with all the rehypothecation. DeFi and CeFi did the exact same thing. Everybody was focused on getting rich, getting profits improving, enhancing, or increasing their market share of the crypto market. And because of that, things got out of whack and blew up on everyone to everyone's detriment, right? So crypto demagogues and populists like Do Kwan, Sam Bankman-Fried, Alexander Mashinsky, the folks over there at BlockFi, Genesis, DCG, like, all the funny business that they were doing with customer funds and with their own funds and the way that they misused leverage and were rehypothecating assets to create unsustainable yields on tokens, customer tokens that they were holding. People, I think, are aware of that now. And of course, we all want to get money and get profit out of investing in crypto, obviously. But I think all the crypto demagogues and their downfall and their bad intentions now that have been fully exposed. People are aware of that. And I think it triggered a shift in ideology back toward becoming financially sovereign and managing your own assets, keeping them on a hard wallet, not trusting other people with your assets, questioning where do double digit to triple digit yields come from on staked assets. I think that was a reminder and it's helped people to shift their focus back to what crypto originally kind of stands for, which is financial self-sovereignty and cutting out the middleman and not allowing yourself to be exploited by banks and corporations. And for people that live in places where they're politically unstable, where they're dealing with hyperinflation or they don't have like sufficient financial infrastructure to actually even bank. 
crypto is a solution for them. So from the big blow up, there's a silver lining, kind of like a volcanic explosion. Destroys the environment, but burns off the necessary overgrowth and transforms it into nutrients that new life can then grow up in and thrive through. I think that that was kind of, that's a change. That's a a difference because things got a bit frothy. Just like they did in previous bull markets, things get frothy and euphoric and everybody sees dollar signs and kind of strays away from their true purpose or remembering what the true purpose of crypto is. So yeah, we're back to a healthy medium now, I think. And yeah, that's a little bit different. By investors being smarter, the very first thing I said I think the kind of data that's available to investors and data scientists and project builders now is really nice. So when I first got into crypto, there was no glass node. There was no look into Bitcoin. There was no look on chain. There was no Arkham. There was blockchain.com and it had a lot of Bitcoin and Ethereum kind of network data, but it wasn't as packaged and digestible and a research methodology for kind of like interpreting and disseminating this as content and people actually developing investment methods around on-chain data that's really that's really advanced in the last 6 years so i think that's a positive the more transparency you have in crypto the better you can look at what's happening on-chain and identify who's doing what on-chain the better you know So yeah, I think that's a massive change. And it's what's nice is a lot of that data is completely free and open source. So it reflects the ethos of crypto, which is democratized and decentralized. And it's pretty easy to digest. So almost anyone can go dig into Glassnode data and begin to figure out what's happening on chain. What does it mean that more wallets are being created? What does it mean that there's an uptick in network activity? What does it mean that transaction fees are rising or long-term holders are selling or long-term holders are adding to their wallet balance? That's all really useful data for assessing network health and assessing adoption of an asset. And also it's helpful in developing a successful investment thesis. So that's a major change from 2017, in my opinion. What's your five and 10 year vision for crypto and blockchain? You know, this is actually kind of a hard question for me to answer because I tend to try to avoid making long-term, like especially price predictions. I'm kind of more interested in the technology itself. So I'm going to potentially avoid the price aspect of this question. Although I do believe that crypto and blockchain are not going anywhere and that so as an investment asset, it will continue to grow. The space will continue to grow. It seems to me like the writing is on the wall. Even if you don't have a particularly strong belief that like Bitcoin will be the global reserve currency, I don't particularly think that that, uh, it will, but like Just if you look at the news that is coming out and all the asset managers and all the Bitcoin ETF filings and every major bank having launched, thinking of launching or in the process of launching a crypto desk, like it just seems like the writing is on the wall and it would be a little bit stupid to not consider it as a, at least a potential investment asset. And now we're still so early in the space that like five years from now, especially 10 years from now, it's I feel like it's going to be an entirely different world. I think that Bitcoin and Ethereum are probably not going anywhere. 
Interesting. We had a one of the things that it stuck out to me from a recent episode we did with uh, Origin Trail was the question of like the founders are asking if we die, will this project continue on? It's very clear that Bitcoin will continue on. Ethereum, if Vitalik were to die in, in two years, I assume it would continue on. Would it be as strong? I, I don't know. And then I think that probably most cryptocurrencies are going to collapse. <laughs> I don't know, just being quite frank. You know, the big ones might still be here, but if they're like, I don't know, thousands and thousands, I forget what it is on CoinMarketCap now, thousands and thousands of cryptocurrencies or like token-based projects. And just like any kind of nascent sector or the startup world or anything, that they're, the majority are probably going to collapse. But I do think that we will probably see on a technological level more blockchain technology, maybe not even with crypto tokens involved being used on larger and larger levels, like a bigger enterprises relying on it. On the same time, I think that the risk, the long-term, medium to long-term risk of crypto is that it will end up being co-opted just like pretty much every other technology. So I think perhaps a realistic, this might be longer than 10 years, but a realistic, maybe long-term vision for crypto would be something akin to how the internet is operated now, where there are a few centralized infrastructure providers where everybody is using it or a lot of people are using it in some form or another without even realizing or without understanding how the backend technology works. They may not even realize that they're doing stuff on the blockchain. And I think that is very realistic that sort of the counterculture, anti-authoritarian tradition or roots of crypto will fall to the wayside and sort of be corporatized and brought mainstream. You know, maybe we'll have like a McDonald's will be, a, I don't know, giving out sats with their orders. And some people are in favor of that. But for me, I feel like kind of, I'm more attracted to the, like I mentioned earlier, the kind of the decentralized counterculture ethos that is prevalent in crypto. And I fear that that's going to disappear. And I think there will always be radical implementations of blockchain, just as there is of the internet. But I feel like it might get sort of sanitized as time goes on. And question number three, what is the future of crypto in your perspective? With a bubble pop, with crypto fizzling away, will Bitcoin become an international reserve currency or will the future lie somewhere in the middle? Okay, that's a fantastic question. I could take a really long time to answer that one, but I'll try to be as brief as possible. I think crypto will mainstream and become a part of everyday life. For people that want it, to and unknowingly, uh, at least the blockchain part will be on the back end and it should, uh, yeah, I do think it'll become a part of everyday life and that it will mainstream. I don't think we're in a bubble at all. I think the bubble popped when Alameda and FTX went down. I think the bubble started popping when the Fed ended quantitative easing and its easing money policy. I think the bubble popped when the Fed began to raise interest rates and followed that up with quantitative tightening in the U.S., but also globally. Liquidity had tightened at certain periods over the last two years. So I think that was the bubble popping and that we are not in a bubble in crypto right now, not even close. Like the wand has not even been dipped into the soapy solution to that someone would then hold and blow in to create a bubble. So... No, I don't think we're in a bubble. 
Will Bitcoin become an international reserve currency? Yes and no. In my opinion, I think Bitcoin will not supplant the dollar and become this currency of reserve that all different nations are choosing to settle in. I don't think that that is the case. I think that money requires elasticity. It needs to be able to expand its supply. It needs to be able to contract its supply. And I think that central banks require that option also to be elastic with money. So I don't personally see how Bitcoin fits into that as something with low emissions that's also supply capped. But perhaps we should bring on, you know, Paul Krugman and other brilliant economists, one pro and one anti-Bitcoin, so they can explain it to us because they're way smarter than I am. But I do think that you will continue to see Bitcoin come onto corporate balance sheets and that you'll see sovereigns also begin to put Bitcoin into their sovereign wealth funds or into their treasuries also. I do believe that. But I don't think that Bitcoin will become the number one international reserve currency. If you had the ability to start your own blockchain project that was well-funded to the extent of like $100 million, what would you build and what about it do you think would give it longevity? It's a very good question. I think there are a few different ways to tackle or to think about this question. The first thing I would ask is... Why am I even guaranteed longevity? <laughs> I don't know that anything I make would necessarily... Like, I feel like when you start any kind of project, you could have the best, most creative idea in the world, but there's always a little bit of luck that is involved. I guess let's assume that I end up lucky and whatever I do has the potential to be very successful. The second question is, would I feel comfortable accepting $100 million to fund a blockchain project. My fear of accepting that, well, first of all, my assumption is that that would be VC money, right? And my fear with accepting that massive amount of VC money for a project would be that the VC investors would have very high demands for the success of the project. I feel like if I take like $100 million in venture capital funding, they're going to want a return, right? And so what if my project I want to make isn't specifically focused on making money, but whether it's to help people or something like that, then how do I, how do I get them that $100 million back in a way that is true to what I want to do with a project? And whatever project I do is not going to be focused primarily on making tons of money for investors. So that might be the second thing I would think about. But I guess if we take both of those, and we say, okay, they're just giving you money with no expectations of returns. Do whatever you want with it. Maybe it's like a some sort of activist investor who's like, we like what you're doing. Just do whatever you want to do with this money. Actually, something that could be interesting would be a blockchain project that's focused on community resiliency. So tying it into being prepared for emergencies and disasters or being able to function as a society, as a community after an emergency or disaster. So maybe like some sort of community coordination protocol. Maybe there's a, a token involved that doesn't have to have value. But yeah, I kind of like that idea. Something that helps empower communities to be self-reliant and resilient outside of emergencies that then could be used 
during or after emergencies, catastrophes, to keep communities connected. So maybe there would be like a communications protocol or sorry, a communications element. Maybe there would be like some sort of resource sharing element that tokens track. And maybe you could run these decentralized nodes with solar panels. And then the nodes also have like servers and you can share information. And maybe they're like mesh networked. I think that could be really interesting. And then if you want to really extend it, then you could even have like multiple of these different technologically assisted communities using this technology in some sort of resource coordination fashion. Communicate with one another. If you can make the mesh long enough, you could like connect different communities together. Or if the Blockstream satellite, if there's like satellite networks running, you connect them together uh, via satellite and download the blockchain. And then like, I don't know, this is obviously all super hypothetical, but I feel like that is an area that I I keep searching for something to write about or someone to interview that's working using blockchain specifically on community resilience and disaster and catastrophe resilience and don't see a lot of it going on. So that would be super cool to to work on. Well, thank you all for listening. Hope this has been interesting, perhaps a bit entertaining. Maybe you've gotten to know us a little bit better. As always, we are Jonathan DeYoung and Ray Salman, and we'll catch you on episode 21. The Agenda is hosted and produced by me, Ray Salmond. And by me, Jonathan DeYoung. You can listen and subscribe to The Agenda at cointelegraph.com slash podcasts or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else podcasts are found. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and leave a review. You can find me on Twitter at Horace Hughes, H-O-R-U-S-H-U-G-H-E-S. And I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and just about everywhere else at MadDopeMatic. That's M-A-D-D-O-P-E-M-A-D-I-C. Be sure to follow Cointelegraph on Twitter and Instagram at Cointelegraph. 